Russia is a formidable adversary going through an intense and comprehensive modernization effort. Gotta stop thinking about the Russians as the Soviets. A lot of the lessons might be interesting, but, but many of them are no longer relevant. Their military transition from the Cold War to now is stark. They want to kind of see the incorporation of a greater share of military autonomy as the first and second and third attacking wave followed by man formation. Choosing to focus on influence operations, strategic partnerships, and winning without fighting. Democracies depend on having a shared objective reality and a basis for consensus to make collective decisions. We should expect that Russian influence operations will continue to focus on undermining our shared public sphere. This is The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. And today we're talking to subject matter experts from the military, think tanks, and academia. I think they believe that the United States is in decline and they want to try to accelerate that decline to the extent that they can. To determine how Russia fights. My name is Ian Sullivan. I'm the senior advisor for analysis and ISR at the Tradoc G2. My main job is to set the analytic lines that go into the Army's near-term operational environment assessment. Russia watched the United States build combat power against Iraq in Desert Storm and Iraqi freedom and against Serbia in allied force before launching an attack and realizes that allowing the United States to marshal its forces in an uncontested manner, build up logistics and combat power over time, and then conduct operations on timelines of its choosing would be a recipe for disaster. I think a lot has changed for the Russians when you when you think about where they were in the mid-90s and the early 2000s. I remember following the Russians the time I was working for the Navy, but I also spent a lot of time focusing on what they were doing in Chechnya. And I remember watching that force that went in and, and fought that battle of Grozny uh, and just what a sledgehammer kind of force it was not very sophisticated, what they did to even get forces, uh, you know, enough to, to matter uh, in, into the theater of fighting was, was pretty significant. They just lacked, you know, significant capability, and they did well with, with what they had, but it was a real struggle for them. I think the differences that, that we see now come down to, to a couple of, of factors. The first thing is they've, they've received some additional funding over the years, and I think that's mattered. It's not massive. They haven't received funding, say, on the scale that we see with the Chinese, but they've gotten enough funding and essentially to, to bring on some new capabilities in some, I would say, niche areas that, that have really helped them. And so I think that, that that's been a, been a big factor. I'm Samuel Pendet, and I'm an advisor with the CNA Russia Studies Program and an adjunct senior fellow with the Center for a New America Security. I research the developments of military robotics and artificial intelligence in the Russian military. Russian military modernization that began in 2009 was actually influenced by Russian performance in the war in Georgia, which was really the last sort of Soviet war fought by the military that was still slow to modernize. And the lessons that Russia learned from that war uh, laid the foundation for multiple modernization drives, which are still taking place today. So it's tempting to think of the Russian military in sort of subjective terms, because we view the Russian military as the competitor and an adversary We tend to ascribe to that military force structure, a lot of problems and issues that we think they cannot overcome. 
In reality, however, Russian military is proving to be a lot more flexible and a lot more responsive to the modern challenges that it is facing. And of course, the Russian war and involvement in Syria has taught it a lot about the current pace of warfare, how to conduct modern warfare, how to conduct warfare uh, that is underpinned by rapid movements, rapid maneuvers, use of special forces, use of proxies, use of uh, unmanned aerial and robotic systems of different kinds, use of sort of net-centric warfare concepts and practices that connect different Russian elements for a rapid response. So Russian military is still going through a lot of the growing pains and challenges that uh, are sort of a leftover from its Soviet days. But those challenges are becoming less and less and fewer and fewer as the time passes on. They have a, a very well-educated officer corps in terms of the study of, of the military art and or science. You know, I think, I think the Russians probably think of it in, in both ways. Um, and I think they've relied on, on that officer corps to, to think long and hard about warfare and how Russia can operate in, in contemporary conditions. And I think what we've seen um, are some really sophisticated thinking on their part, which sort of match the capabilities they have to an approach to warfare that, that they would be able to carry out. Russia's military has significant combat experience, fighting in Chechnya, Crimea, Donbass, Georgia, and Syria. We're seeing how some of that is already tested in Syria. Of course, as, uh, as uh, was mentioned earlier, Russian military is learning a lot from its combat experience, especially in Syria. So much of what Russian military is doing and so much of its drills and exercises are actually underpinned by the phrase, lessons learned from Syria. And uh, all kinds of, uh, of, of military combat uh, that Russian military is engaged in in Syria, whether it's tactical, whether it's uh, special forces combat, whether it's proxy combat, aerial combat, uh, is uh, the lessons from that are integrated in the Russian military. They got a lot of combat experience, right? And they've been able to learn uh, lessons from what they've done. You know, we, we in the U.S. Army tend to think that we're the most combat experienced force on the planet with what we've been doing over the, the last 20 years um, and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and elsewhere. But if you think about it, the Russians have been every bit as busy as, as we've been, you know, starting in, in Chechnya uh, multiple times, right? Uh, Chechnya and Dagestan. Uh, then you flash forward, uh, you know, I was still in U.S. Army Europe when Georgia went down. And then you think you think more recently, right? You think about Crimea, you think about Eastern Ukraine, uh, you definitely think about Syria, and then you see them popping up in other locales in in Africa, right? Places like Libya and 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 some other areas as well. So I I think they've they've taken combat experience uh, and lessons learned, uh, matched it with with a very well educated officer class that has done a lot of thinking about warfare and put it all together, they've been able to take advantage of the, the increase, I think, in resources that they were given uh, to, to create something of a, of a force that's relatively capable under the conditions in which they'd want to use it. I think it is going to be a big transformative change. The Russian military officials, the Ministry of Defense, 
And the Russian government have spoken a lot on the effect of the unmanned military systems, on crude military systems, and artificial intelligence on military operations. Of course, Russian military is looking at what the United States is doing, what the United States is researching and testing, what other advanced militaries like United Kingdom and China are doing, what other regional militaries are doing. So for the Russian military, the, the um, incorporation of certain types of military autonomy and robotic systems are going to have a long lasting effect. The overall mission for integrating military robotics and AI is to make military missions more effective for Russia and to safeguard human lives. That is to safeguard human soldiers and possibly limit the collateral damage, to remove soldiers from most dangerous frontline combat and replace human soldiers with some type of military autonomy Assuming, of course, it is properly tested and uh, Russian military understands the best way to field it. So this is going to be a very long-term transformative change. Russian military wants to use artificial intelligence for decision-making capabilities so that they will have uh, an assistant to crunch through, analyze all kinds of disparate data coming at soldiers, at the tactical, operational, strategic levels, at the decision-makers at those levels, and uh, so that this AI augmented decision maker would be able to produce the most optimal outcome for uh, military ops, for use of weapons, and uh, anything else that would be uh, important for the military. Again, this is a long-term transformative change where Russian military wants to be able to see, to be able to analyze, uh, to be able to quickly react to the changing combat environment. And we're seeing how some of that is already tested in Syria. As was mentioned earlier, Russian military is learning a lot from its combat experience, especially in Syria. So much of what Russian military is doing and so much of its drills and exercises are actually underpinned by the phrase lessons learned from Syria. And uh, all kinds of military combat uh, that Russian military is engaged in in Syria, whether it's tactical, whether it's uh, special forces combat, whether it's proxy combat, aerial combat, the lessons from that are integrated in the Russian military. And so we are seeing Russian military starting to use more military robotic and autonomous systems, different kinds of systems working together with manned and crude formations. We're starting to see how Russian military is thinking through the concept of fielding and adopting different types of robotics for different types of warfare. By the late 1990s, Russia focused on studying the U.S. approach to warfare and began broad, transformative modernization efforts to challenge post-Cold War U.S. dominance. I think what we see is that the Russians have, have definitely been experimenting with new kinds of systems, right? But I, I, I don't know how transformative it'll, it'll be yet. I, I don't know if it will shift their doctrine, largely because I, I don't know if they've if they're comfortable enough with the systems that, that they have. I mean, right now it's it's a lot of testing of, of individual capabilities. What can this ground combat robotic unit do? I don't know if they're to a point yet where they've thought about what large-scale formations would do. Moving forward, if, if these systems are successful, if these systems work you know, the way that, that they think they will, I think they will come up with new ideas and new approaches to conflict. But at the end of the day, it's going to be really, it's going to take a lot for me to be convinced that they're going to shift some of their key ideas, like the fires idea. You know, unmanned systems might give them new opportunities to, to use fires. They might give them new opportunities to maneuver to create the conditions for fires to kill, for all we know. But I don't know how it's going to fundamentally change it yet. I think the jury's still out, and I think we have to kind of watch and, and see. Russian military today states that 
up to 70% of the systems that it's using uh, for the ground forces are modernized or completely new. And so within the next decade, Russian military will try to push the modernization and acquisition of completely new technologies, probably as close to 100% as it is possible. We all point back to Gerasimov's writings when he talked about the ratio of non-military operations to military operations in modern warfare is at least four to one in favor of non-military options and operations. So I think that alone kind of shows what the what the Russians are thinking. And we've all seen how good they are at information operations and operating in the information space, what they call information confrontation. They're, they're masters at it. My name is Katya Sedova. I am a research fellow at Georgetown University's Center for Security and Emerging Technology. And uh, my primary focus is uh, artificial intelligence, cyber operations, and disinformation, and how all of these three areas intersect for national and international security. In the last year, we've seen multiple campaigns from Russian disinformation operators attempting to influence the elections, weaponize ambiguity of a, an evolving global pandemic, and to amplify disinformation related to COVID-19. So before we answer how they plan to fight, it's useful to see how they are fighting today and how their strategy and tactics have been evolving. Russian military wants to use artificial intelligence for decision-making capabilities so that they will have a, an assistant to crunch through, analyze all kinds of disparate data coming at soldiers, at the tactical, operational, strategic levels, at the decision-makers at those levels, and so that this AI-augmented decision-maker would be able to produce the most optimal outcome for uh, military ops, for use of weapons, uh, and uh, anything else that would be uh, important for the military. Russia seeks to maintain global relevance and will try to influence the United States, fracture Western alliances, and deter the expansion of NATO in Eastern Europe. So from strategic perspective, uh, these ongoing operations tell us that Russia has decided that this is a useful tool for this gray zone between war and peace. It's cheaper than aircraft carriers and it focuses the fight on the target society's domestic information environment and its decision making. It exploits informational ambiguity and known historic fissures. It works to sow confusion and to undermine trust. It also tells us that even in their campaigns, if they don't get much traction, uh, being seen as trying to influence in itself may be a goal. It elevates the perception of Russia's capabilities, and it also makes target societies feel vulnerable and sows mistrust through the so-called perception hacking. All of this makes it unlikely that this line of effort from Russian actors will go away anytime soon. My name is Andrea Kendall-Taylor, and I am currently at the Center for a New American Security, where I direct the Transatlantic Security Program. What are the implications of new digital tools for authoritarianism? And we find that those leaders that are more savvy in using digital repression actually face fewer protests than those regimes that don't. So whereas, you know, we had seen an increase um, social media and other things sparking things like the Arab Spring, um, that was a huge wake-up call for these repressive governments like China and Russia to learn to kind of co-opt these same tools in a way that actually helps them increase their control over their own population. So now what we see is really a reversal where 
um, they, they're using these tools to identify opponents um, and do all sorts of things that make them less vulnerable to protests. And it actually increases their durability in office. And you can really see, you know, obviously I follow the Russia side of this equation, the, the tremendous crackdown in the online sphere within Russia. It's a really a tremendous wave of repression happening inside Russia with Putin really trying to shut down what had been a relatively open sphere for Russians with all of the crackdown online. From the tactical perspective, their operations have changed since 2016. First, doing expansive, noisy operations such as IRA's efforts uh, in 2016 is now much more difficult because social media platforms are paying greater attention. They have cracked down, uh, including through tips from the intelligence community and tighter work with uh, independent researchers. And in this case, you see Russia moving much more in the direction of China, trying to create a sovereign internet, right? Cutting themselves off from the global internet because they fear the United States can weaponize that in a time of conflict. We see more of their operations hatch on smaller platforms and fringe forums um, and also off platform entirely, meaning they center around fake media sites and fake think tanks. We also see them recruiting unwitting humans to do their bidding. Uh, so, for example, in their 2020 operations, um, like peacedata.org, for example, uh, Russian actors affiliated with former IRA hired unwitting freelance writers to produce content for fake media sites that targeted political left and political right in the United States. Um, this was an evolution in tactics. Previously, they've hired trolls overtly <laughs> to use them covertly. Uh, in this case, the freelance journalists did not know they were being hired to be part of a Russian influence campaign. Even though they don't have that, that mass that they used to, and the, the big one being uh, that to the Russians, fires still dominate the battle space. Right. And they might not have the the massive fires that they used to when you think about something like the old third guard shock army that that used to, you know, supposed to blast the front open in uh, in the North German plain. Right. And you think of all the, the artillery. Was there. They don't have that quantity. But what they do have is is some quality. Right. And in their fires. And that's one of the niche areas that that they've invested in, you know, over the, the last 15 years or so. Uh, they have some very good fires capabilities, and they've matched them up with, I think, um, increasingly capable ISR to to allow them to use the fires in, in creative ways. And they kind of think about warfare a little bit differently than than we do, right? We're a we're a maneuver force. We want it, we will maneuver uh, to to win the fight. We're going to maneuver to create the position of advantage and the threat to the enemy. And then the conditions to, to exploit what, what we can create with maneuver. And our fires support that maneuver. The Russians flip it on its head. The Russians will, will maneuver to create conditions for their fires to kill you. And so they still think in those terms, right? They still think about being able to use fires as the decisive point of a, of a battle. And I think they, they showed this, you know, this is... We talk about a combat experience force, but if you go back, I think it was July of 2014 um, in Ukraine at Zelenopilia, right, um, where the Russians were able to utterly decimate a Ukrainian battalion. I mean, just they made it disappear, right, with the quantity of fires that they could bring from, 
you know, the, the multiple rocket launcher formations that they had, the tornadoes, uh, you know, take the grid square and make everything in it disappear. And that those fires were, were integrated very well with ISR, and they, they created the conditions to, to essentially make a, an entire formation disappear. And I think it was something like three minutes. If we look at future conflict, I think what's going to happen is that Russia will continue to perfect what it calls the reconnaissance strike and reconnaissance fire contour. And that is connecting its, um, its mass artillery, multiple launch rocket systems, uh, connecting its, um, its, uh, its ground operations with aerial combat and um, unmanned aerial vehicles, for example, as major ISR elements. So in previous conflicts, Russian military wasn't very precise in hitting targets. It could mass fires, but it wasn't always precise. So the military is now working to, um, to essentially solving this problem. And it is doing so with the help of UAVs, where Russian military drones, both long range, short range drones, uh, tactical drones, uh, it's uh, high altitude, long endurance and uh, medium altitude, long endurance drones, its entire sort of drone park uh, is going to be the eyes and ears for the Russian military for what is happening on the ground. So that once the target is sighted, it is going to be continuously monitored for the Russian military, for the artillery forces, for other forces to launch a precise strike. And this is what the military is practicing today in its drills and exercises. And this is something that the Russian military was also working on in Syria as well. So that's kind of the way that I've looked at this. I know obviously things like autonomous systems and drones and robotics all have implications for the way that these fight. I think Russian military using military robotics for logistics is something that is going to free up Russian resources that is going to remove uh, soldiers from, uh, from dangerous combat. And if those logistics, roboticized logistics, are affected by adversarial actions and countermeasures, then such a measure would only affect, in other words, machinery and not the human lives. So I think this is a serious investment. Uh, while Russian military is testing new systems piecemeal, they may indeed seem as novelties, but the goal here is long-term thinking fielding different types of systems to see which ones are going to be more effective, which ones are going to be more applicable, which ones can withstand the stress of combat and eventually be used by the Russian military. And so I think Zapad 2021 was the first major mass exercise where different types of UAVs were used for different kinds of missions. I think learning from that, MOD is going to integrate more UGVs and more UAVs and different types of drills and exercises, something that we'll, we'll be probably seeing in 2022 as the Russian military will ramp up its military drill schedule. On the ground, Russian military used four different types of UGVs for ISR, reconnaissance, fire, combat, demining roles, as well as um, in the new and emerging Russian military concept of urban warfare or fighting in the cities, as the Russians call it. And even though those UGVs were used in very small numbers, right, we're still not seeing sort of dozens or hundreds of these machines functioning together. Russian military is trying to integrate these uh, unmanned ground vehicles with existing military formations, with combined arms forces. 
so that the Russian military will learn what it's like to use these systems, what are they good for, what are they not good for, and how to best integrate these systems in the current operations. This is the goal that the MOD has set for 2022 and beyond. Part of the reason they, they've, they've shifted to that contract core is, is they saw um, particularly the state of the Russian military at the end of the Cold War and in those, those really dark days of the, of the early 1990s and, and just how ineffective the force was when it was almost exclusively conscript. Uh, so I think those lessons bore significant you know, resonance as the Russian military thought about what it wanted to do to modernize. I think the problem, again, that they have is a demographics one. It's, it's finding enough people who are, are interested, willing, and capable of, of joining the force in a, in a voluntary sense. But, but they've made significant progress. Uh, if we were having this conversation you know, 10 years ago, I think the numbers may have been something like 70-30 in favor of conscript. You know, it's now much closer to 50-50. And I think, you know, if the Russians do what, what they'd probably like to do, I think you'll, you'll start seeing more contract soldiers than, than conscript. You know, their, con- their conscription system as it exists today creates a significant problem for them, which is it's, it's a very short term. It's 12 months of active service. Uh, which, which, if you think about it, really isn't that long, right? I mean, by the time you finish some kind of basic training and, and I suppose some form of, of rudimentary advanced training, you're, you're talking about maybe you know six months left of, of actual active service before you go to the reserves. So when you think of the complexity of modern warfare, you know, believe that a, a conscript who's, who's only going to be in for 12 months before separating from the force is going to be able to do that much other than, than relatively straightforward, sort of simple kinds of, of tasks and missions. So I think that's a real issue for them, and I think that's something that they, they will need to work on and, and figure out. You know, I think the more complex tasks are obviously going to go toward the, the contract soldiers who are, are there for a longer period of time, who they'll invest in, who they'll train, right, who they'll educate, and, and, and who will, will gain the experience as they, as they move forward. The Russians have always had a pretty good training and education system for their officer corps. It'll be interesting to see how they expand it uh, to, to NCOs and enlisted soldiers, but I know that's something they're interested in doing. Russia has certainly uh, internalized the utility of cyber operations, uh, as some would call to offset the asymmetric inequality, perhaps, in some other military capabilities. With SolarWinds hack in particular, we saw SVR uh, penetrate the process of building a software update and inserting a malicious file as the update was built. Once built, the update package was basically signed with digital certificate that signaled to anyone installing it that it was trustworthy, that it belonged on a system. And it made its way to tens of thousands of customers that downloaded this particular software update and installed it on their machines. Uh, SVR succeeded in targeting a supply chain with this what's called a supply chain attack, which basically resulted in them breaching networks of hundreds of companies and a dozen of government agencies because they targeted a central node, a company that ran its software and all these networks of machines. And if they can, they can 
penetrate and exploit a central node in a system, it allows them to get access to many more machines than they ever hoped. I think we should expect more where that came from. Russia is adept at manufacturing a crisis that it can quickly resolve militarily short of the conflict phase with the United States. It conducts a rapid military operation designed to quickly achieve a result and then seeks a diplomatic resolution before the United States can generate combat power and move to the effective theater. It essentially creates facts on the ground over an issue that it judges, likely, is more relevant to Moscow than it is to Washington. And then it seeks to find a negotiated solution, offering the United States a choice between acceptance or large-scale war to overturn the game. You know, the win-without-fighting part is, is essential to the way they think about conflict. And when I say when I say conflict, I mean sort of big-picture, great-power rivalry, right? I mean, I... We have a we have a pretty straightforward model as we talk about it in the in the U.S. Department of Defense. We talk about competition, we talk about crisis, we talk about conflict. As the Russians think about it, I think there's something like nine different levels to this, and it's a mixture of of military and civilian actions. and And depending on the actor, you can be in multiple states simultaneously. I mean, it's a very complex model, and it's it's probably in some ways more realistic about what what contemporary conflict using particularly information is is all about. Russia cares so much more about the Arctic than China does. Key priority for the Kremlin to develop this region. It's really key um, for their national economic development. There's a lot of kind of oligarchs and people around Putin who have economic interests in the region. So this is really high on the Kremlin's priority list. It wouldn't be prioritized similarly in Beijing. Um, and for Russia, it's a status quo player, right? They are happy with the current arrangement where they have a seat in the Arctic Council. They are on par with the United States and the other Arctic member states. They really want to maintain that influence and ensure that China doesn't really gain any real influence over Arctic governance. So that's really important. And I think, it, you know, there are occasionally tensions over the North, things like the Northern Sea Route. So for Russia, they obviously like the Chinese investment, but Moscow wants to be able to maintain control over that route. If China's funding it, I, you know, that's a, an issue that might create some tension between them. So I think when you step back and look at the Arctic, it's a mixed bag. There's more going on between Russia and China now than there was before, but they have some significant fissures between them. Right now, at this point, the likelihood of them fighting together in the Arctic is pretty low. Um, I would say put that at a pretty low probability the main thing I think we have to keep an eye on is the way that China is increasing its insight into Russia's dual use technology. Those are technologies that in theory Beijing could use to build its military capabilities. I think the thing maybe that I worry the most about is from the Russia side, that if they become so reliant on Chinese cash access to technology, they might be willing to toe the line on Beijing's interests. They might be do China's bidding because they fear losing access to that cash and that technology. So that's something I think we need to watch is if they're overly dependent on China, um, that might you know, push them to do things that maybe aren't even in the Kremlin's interest because there's, it's so important for them not to jeopardize China's financial support. Our featured expert guests have spoken at length about how Russia fights. The question remains, what are we in the Army and national security community missing when it comes to Russia? 
we tend to want to put Russia in a box and we tend to want to make it go away, put it in maintenance mode on ice and not potentially not pay attention as much. And that's a mistake because time and again, we've seen that when we start dismissing and deprioritizing uh, Russia as a threat, it tends to uh, remind ourselves, remind us of itself. Uh, Russians get a vote, whether they get dismissed as a, a strategic competitor or not. And uh, this isn't something we can just wish away. We have to continue to pay attention to this uh, nation and its capabilities. I think what's important is to keep an eye on the bull. And this is not uh, a unique statement. We've heard that over the past number of years. We've heard that this year, that as U.S. military and as the U.S. government concentrates on a significant threat, it usually does so uh, fully. So while the United States was really paying attention to counterterrorism operations, there were other threats that were emerging that may not have necessarily gotten the same level of attention. As the United States is going to pivot towards analyzing the threat from China, it may not devote enough resources to trying to understand what the Russian military is doing and developing as well. And so for the United States to truly understand what Russia is doing, it needs to pay constant attention to what Russia is developing, how it's testing its weapons, what it's writing about, what it is publicly discussing when it comes to the new ways and new, uh, new concepts for warfare. So again, I don't think United States establishment is missing anything because it does have the resources that are looking at the Russian military problem set. But the goal here is to have a, a continuous observation, a, a continuous monitoring of what our adversaries are doing without necessarily pivoting away from one country to another to such an extent that we may be surprised by, for example, what happened in Crimea in 2014. There has been such a strong emphasis, whether it's in the interim strategic guidance or um, just in rhetoric at NATO and other places about this kind of sole focus on China, China climate and COVID. And in many ways, at least at the strategic level, that Russia um, has kind of fallen in the priority list. And I think what I and I think that is in part because there is this persistent belief that Russia is a declining power. And if we can just kind of contain the most egregious things that Russia does now, that later on we'll face a less capable adversary. It's almost like a, a, a mindset that we can wait Russia out and that we can just set it aside, mitigate it. Um, focus on China, and then we'll be in a better place. And I think that's the narrative that we really wanted to address and to replace this framing of Russia as a declining power as one of Russia as a persistent power. Despite a lagging economy and diminishing international influence, Russia remains a conventionally capable nuclear-armed near-peer adversary with global reach. From our guests, we have learned how the Russian military has transformed itself to win without fighting, employ advanced cyber and information operations, and exploit already existing fractures between Western alliances and societies. Stay tuned for the next installment of How We Fight as the Army Mad Scientist Initiative continues to explore our key adversaries' modernization and ways of war.